Welcome to this episode of the Health Disparities Podcast, a production of the Movement is Life Caucus. You can learn more about Movement is Life and our initiatives at movementislifecaucus.com. I'm Dr. Dwight Burney. I'm an orthopedic surgeon in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and a member of the Movement is Life Steering Committee. It's my honor to welcome Dr. McAllis Hogan, MD, MBA, the Vice Chair of Education and the Residency Program Director in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Prior to joining UPMC, he completed his orthopedic residency at the University of Virginia, and then a foot and ankle fellowship at the Hospital for Special Surgery. He currently serves as the Medical Director for Outcomes and Registries for the UPMC Donald F. Wolf Jr. Center for Quality, Safety, and Innovation. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Hogan. We really appreciate your participation and insights on the important subjects we're covering. And I know you've supported both the podcast and our annual conference in the past. Well, absolutely. Hey, it's great being here. Uh, and uh, I've really enjoyed you know, working with and supporting and collaborating with Movement is Life uh, over the years uh, and looking forward to uh, many more opportunities to engage and partner together going forward. Well, we're really grateful to have you. Uh, tell us about your work at UPMC. You wear a lot of hats there. Yes, I mean here at UPMC. Uh, in addition to being a you know a busy clinical uh, foot and ankle specialist, uh, I work closely with uh, healthcare leaders, uh, both from our uh, quality side uh, as well as with our UPMC health plan. Uh, and it also gives a unique opportunity to partner with orthopedic surgeons, both from the academic as well as community and private practice realms uh, across our multi-hospital uh, integrated network and system. Uh, it's been a, a fortunate ride thus far, uh, and we continue to work uh, to provide the best care for patients, the community, uh, and really learn together uh, in that process. Well, you're really dealing with all the stakeholders in this value question. The healthcare in our country has always been pretty much divided, uh, defined by how it's paid for. All of the uh, stakeholders, i.e. the patients, the providers, both individual and institutional, and the payers agree that uh, the health current healthcare costs are unsustainable. What's UPMC done to try and deal with this cost issue? So we've taken a number of approaches. Uh, I believe the first, uh, well, the most important aspects is to truly acknowledge that cost uh, has an impact uh, on how we can provide the best care for our patients, how we may continue to innovate. Uh, and uh, specifically for UPMC, as a payer provider in the integrated network, uh, cost has uh, a number of uh, definitions of perspectives uh, and a number of stakeholders, even within our own institution. So as a provider and as a payer uh, and um, uh, managing uh, 3.5 million lives uh, through our health plan, uh, we have to have an appreciation of cost. Uh, and so a number of things that we've tried to do from the orthopedic perspective is we have a very strong orthopedic service line uh, with uh, physicians uh, partnering with our administrative counterparts and, and colleagues to really how do we manage uh, the, the cost question. Uh, how do we manage that while also being able to innovate? And really, the, our approach in start, starts with really communicating and partnering together. We have set up a number of uh, what we do call value analysis committees, uh, looking at implant costs, also a number of pathway committees, uh, specifically in joint replacement, also spine, uh, low back pain disease, uh, and a number of other realms uh, across the orthopedic and musculoskeletal subspecialties, really looking at our cost of care uh, and cost of care delivery. Uh, and then we 
get the other side of that coin and that we will, uh, where appropriate, uh, partner with our health plan and really look at uh, what are the downstream cost elements, not just on the hospital side uh, and physician or surgeon side, but on the claims paid and really uh, population management side. And so I do believe uh, we, we have not identified or created our own utopia as of yet, but I do believe we have a great platform uh, and all of the pieces uh, to really help drive how we deliver care going forward. Well, you mentioned all of the different uh, varying viewpoints on cost, and I think it's very interesting that uh, um, that uh, a lot of these are in conflict. I'm thinking of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and what started out as the, the triple aim, which is now the quadruple aim, uh, which is to improve access to care, uh, improve quality and lower cost, and use all providers uh, to the best of their ability, what's called at the top of their license. Sometimes these goals seem contradictory. Um, tell me about uh, your efforts at UP to uh, harmonize these goals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the quadruple aim, it's, it's a great point. I mean, how um, do you find harmony when everyone's singing at a different note uh, in their perspective of what that may be? Uh, and um, while we've been through a lot this year with the pandemic, I mean, I, some would describe essentially what has played out as a reflection of that, though things have come together and we're going in a positive direction. Um, healthcare, uh, first, the access piece. If you do not have access, and I believe this is important for hospital systems, if they can't provide access, they cannot thrive. Uh, and for uh, insurance providers who are taking care of uh, their members, if they do not have access to quality care and, and access, we know that they actually leak into the system or enter through doors and revolving doors that are actually the least ideal uh, in regards to emergency rooms or constantly identifying care in only the urgent care setting, while those settings can be of great value uh, when necessary for the right things. Uh, and so if you're not identifying access first, you, can't improve, you cannot improve quality. How can you actually determine what the appropriate quality is for your membership, for your patients, or for your environment if you do not even have access to the patients who need it or for the patients who need it? And so, uh, and then the cost piece. Um, there, there's no magic pill here. I think we would have already identified it. Uh, I believe you have to be willing to discuss it uh, and determine, okay, what, how can we optimize? Uh, how can we have this dollar go as far as possible? Uh, and re really just drives to the efficiency of how you use that and, and measuring outcomes and say, you know what, this works. There is no one magic uh, bullet. Uh, I believe it's, uh, there are a number of different ways to skin a cat uh, and having an appreciation for those is important. Uh, and then the top of your li the licenses piece, um, how we disperse, resources within healthcare has always been uh, somewhat variable, right? And, and, and broad variation. And what, what that often is driven by is individual silos functioning the way that works best for them or the way that had been created for them. And they say, hey, this must be the only way, right? right. And, and when you think it's the only way, uh, you have a problem. And so what we tried to do uh, is have discussions. Um, I'll give a couple of examples. I mean, our orthopedic joint replacement program and our centers of excellence, we've essentially approached things with what are the core, um, the core access points? You know, how, do pa how should patients come in? Um, should they be coming in through a primary care referral? Should they be coming in through self-referral? But when they do come in, we want to know that when they are referred to a center of excellence program within UPMC or UPMC health plan, these are the basic essentials you're gonna receive. We're going to have an orthopedic care navigator, whether you choose to have that individual be a certified nurse or whether it be a nurse practitioner or whether it be a very highly educated and experienced former surgical tech who really understands joint replacement of that experience. You know what? That that actually is, is part of what we want. You want someone being that entry point and liaison and concierge to that experience. And then from there, 
essentially following metrics for the surgeons that are providing that care so that we know at baseline, you're going to get, we know the quality of care that you're going to receive on majority of, in majority of scenarios uh, and really supporting that. And then also using surgeons, working with surgeons uh, and practices that want to engage on how can we continue to be better. Uh, and even if it comes down to just how do we maintain that high level uh, of performance? Um, it's not to say one's always better than the other, but the, the key is how do you maintain that bar? Uh, and that's, those are the approaches we take. And uh, we have a number of meetings and discussions. Uh, and the, the best part for me um, is that the surgeons are constantly talking, uh, constantly providing feedback with one another uh, and that constant exchange with, with our healthcare system administrative leadership uh, and also the feedback loop of patient outcomes. So that's how we're trying to address that uh, quadruple aim. That seems to be a very comprehensive approach. Uh, I wonder if you'd comment on... Uh your experience in population health. You had mentioned that, and particularly when we talk about disadvantaged populations, uh, people who have adverse social determinants of health and may also have access issues. What's the orthopedic surgeon's role? You have different opinions on this. My perspective and the, the perspective we've tried to build collectively here at UPMC. So when we get into social determinants of health, a majority of surgeons, at least in physicians I know in our environment, when our patients come in, we really want to have the opportunity and tools to take care of. Them. And I think we do have to appreciate that everyone comes from a different position or a different place. Again, I use the pandemic example, right? What is what is socially distancing at home uh, in someone who has a you know three-story home with a basement and six bedrooms versus someone who has a two-bedroom apartment? Uh, they may cost the same, may, <laughs> depending on where you are. Um, and uh, the, the experience and the ability for them to socially distance or, you know, optimize their well-being uh, in a bad situation or in a good situation are, are vastly different. Uh, and our willingness to appreciate that is the first step. OK, uh, now what, what we try to do from there is recognizing that we look at uh, our care across our different payer mix, whether that be Medicaid, uh, Medicare. Uh, whether it be commercial patients, and really have a try to essentially set up our program to where whomever, whomever comes in the door is going to get that optimal baseline care. Uh, and that's where we developed our optimization programs. So it, when you have certain disparities, um, uh, particularly Black, Latino, um, there is a higher rate of comorbidities. Uh, we have to appreciate that. And so we have really worked to build in optimization pathways. We say, hey, look, these are the things we need to work with you to optimize for surgery. Not that you would never ever have a chance to get surgery, but how can we optimize your health uh, uh, so that you can have the best chance at a great outcome uh, and we can all feel good about this. And so I do believe we have to be willing to address that. And optimization means different things uh, for different populations. Uh, and there has to be an appreciation of that on, on the side of the surgical providers. Yeah, I think it's, uh, uh, it's very important that you emphasize optimizing health rather than just teeing somebody up for surgery, mm -hmm. because I think that uh, we as surgeons tend to be very focused on uh, uh, getting to the operating room. That's, that's where we're most comfortable. Have you had any experience at UP with uh, alternate payment models? Yes. In our, in our experience here, we were um, uh, one of the mandatory programs for CJR, for the mandatory joint replacement bundle. Uh, respectfully to that, when it launched in 2015, two or three years prior, again, one of the benefits of being a payer provider is that our UPMC health plan had piloted a joint replacement bundle uh, as well as a spine bundle, uh, really examples, and also a musculoskeletal home model um, in different pilots throughout the system. 
Uh, and they gave us an opportunity to really kind of learn and, and kind of noodle at things. It, it, we we essentially call it here UPMC. We developed our own BPCI type programs and piloted within uh, and really used our living lab model to, to try to gain an understanding. That, put, that definitely propelled us forward. They gave us a foundation to build on when we were uh, thrust into the mandatory uh, program uh, for joint replacement. Uh, and then simultaneously at that time, our health plan uh, again, the, the, the uh, incentives aligned. Our health plan aligned our commercial program product for all joint replacement uh, under a bundled program, a retrospective bundle with targets and co- with quality targets as well as financial targets to match that of the uh, mandatory Medicare program. We have experience in that realm and are still learning and still pushing those forward as well. Are you uh, in- involved in any capitated contracts? We do not have capitated contracts right now, uh, but it, it, the interesting thing about healthcare, again, right, is that um, it's one of the things we're talking about here. Uh, a lot of it comes down to, you know, how do you peel that onion? Uh, and so in one environment, you call it capitation. Another environment says, well, it's a prospective bundle with a downstream target. Another will call it a retrospective. Uh, but essentially it is, hey, here is the bar in line and how much can you get in under that line? <laughs> <laughs> um, when it comes to finances and, and, but, oh yeah, by the way, we want the best, right? We want, we want the best performance and what, what is the minimum, uh, best that you can provide us. And then when you do it, we want all of our patients to feel as though they, that it was great. You know, it's essentially saying we want everyone to feel as though they've had a five-star dinner, uh, regardless, uh, of what the ingredients were. And so, um, but we do have a number of capitated discussions that are ongoing um, and, and population management type capitated discussions that are forthcoming right now. Uh, and that's being driven by industry. It's been driven by companies, uh, corporate America, uh, and also, um, quite frankly, the, the, the governmental space as well of, uh, hey, well, you know, well, where may this go? Well, that's interesting. I, I wonder um, how you managed to uh, get some sort of alignment uh, in financial incentives with uh, the alternate payment models that you've dealt with? So a couple of things. Uh, one, um, we, we have, a, we're a large system, 41 hospitals. We span a, a, across the state and into New York and Maryland now, and even international. So one of the things we've talked about here in Western PA um, are the gain sharing models that are different, right? Risk sharing and gain sharing. Uh, and uh, we've definitely moved uh, further down the line of a sharing model of what type of in-kind services can we support? What type of uh, wraparound resources can we support for center of excellence programs or quality programs that are performing well? In what direction does that go in regards to direct uh, gain sharing for surgeons, direct uh, in-kind services for their programs? We, we have that discussion and we have several things in place in different settings. The other thing we have that we're talking about a lot is um, when you get into aligning those incentives, what I've found is you definitely have to have those discussions up front. They can't be a, a barrier to, to getting off the ground. Um, it, it can't be the only thing that will launch the, you know, launch the rocket. Uh, but you have to acknowledge it up front and then start talking through that together. Um, and uh, if you are willing to do that, uh, I, I believe you can actually have a lot done. Mandates don't hurt. I mean, they, I mean, let's be honest here. The mandatory, the, the, the joint mandate that occurred five years ago uh, changed and rapidly amplified this discussion in orthopedics in ways that it, it likely would not have occurred if it had just continued with BPCI and the voluntary approach. And so I think it's upon us as surgeons uh, and healthcare leaders uh, to help lead that discussion. Otherwise, it will be thrust upon us in some way. The mandate showed it. 
You had mentioned wraparound services. Uh, tell me a little more about that. You know, a lot of the things that we talk about, I mean, it's things that we've, you know, done over the years as orthopedic surgeons and, and, and really just hospitals. Well, what is the patient experience, right? So if the, if the biggest limitation to a patient experience to drive up a drive higher and uh, experience score is essentially just someone saying hello to them when they walk in in the morning, okay, uh, then that, that may be a low cost alternative. And you say, you know what, how about someone else just say hello to them and stop by the, you know, stop by to see them or uh, lend, a, lend a positive comment. Um, uh, and in other scenarios, if, if the efficiency to really be able to take care of patients and have them have a great experience so they're not finishing their surgery at seven or eight o'clock at night and not getting to a hospital floor until 10 or 11 p.m. And so they definitely didn't get up the day of surgery, right? right. If the limiting factor to that is really a, a resource of an additional you know, surgical tech or a physician extender to help facilitate OR efficiency, then those are the discussions you need to have. And often we, we're never able to get down to that level uh, because we we we're caught into a kind of cookie cutter approach of, well, if it doesn't fit on this baking sheet, then we don't know how to actually apply it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's uh, really what we try to look at. And, and we receive feedback from our, we have five centers of excellence in Western PA and several other th uh, others throughout the system. Uh, and we looked at searching feedback, uh, feedback from our nurse navigators who are on the floor. Some environments did not have a nurse navigator. So we had to decide as a system, you know, what is this something we want to invest in? Uh, and the decision was yes. And so if we want, and because we felt there was one, though, that represented a basic essential that was critical to the experience and the outcome of the program uh, and uh, those type of resources that you look into, and then obviously extending into the outpatient space uh, and constantly surveillancing and constantly collecting feedback on how you're performing, uh, I think is critically important. Okay. Um, I was gonna ask you if you had seen any specific instances of, uh, um, Alter these alternative payment models actually uh, inhibiting or uh, worsening uh, healthcare disparities. Yeah, it's definitely there. Um, it, it is definitely there. Uh, I'll give an example. We looked up a couple of years ago and said, you know, we surveillance and we said, let's just look. You know, Medicaid was not in the mandatory bundle, um, but there are some state programs that are state employees, and it's not that much different. For example, and we said, you know what? Let's just take a look and see what has happened with our Medicaid population over time that has actually undergone joint replacement or undergone elective surgery, uh, and it dropped two or three percentage points. And everyone was kind of looking around like, okay, is this a real drop? Is this a significant drop? Is, it, is that a representation of those individuals being turned away? Um, and what we looked at as a payer provider, we looked back at, okay, what are we identifying in regards to their access to care? Are more of those individuals, the same number of those individuals coming in requesting surgery or going into surgery providers with claims and fewer are getting surgery? And we actually didn't see that. But that said, we had to have a willingness to look just to ensure, um, okay, are we seeing significant differences or is that something that's gonna normalize in the future? Uh, the other thing that I would say, and I, I, I'm a proud pronouncer of this, when we actually built our joints bundle program, and uh, not just for joints, but across our value-based programming. We built out pathways. Surgical or preoperative optimization was a part of that regardless. And what we found was patients with lower BMI actually had a higher complication rate than those with higher BMI, malnutrition, uh, failure to thrive. And so essentially what our surgeons identified, and that always kind of spooks people like, oh, really? What we found was we surveyed all the surgeons. <laughs> And we and it was 26 surgeons. And we said, if you knew you would not lose the patient 
all right? You would not be penalized for, you know, canceling someone the day of surgery and all of a sudden they want to pull your OR, you know, block. All the things you're smiling about because you know this is what they, they do to us. You know, how we feel the machine is against us. Would you say, you know what, I will pause to optimize my patient to have the best outcome for elective surgery? 100% consensus said yes. If you praise it that way and said, you know what, if I know they're not going to leave and say the guy across the street or my neighbor is willing to do it because I want to do the right thing by them. Yes. You know, and, and you give me some wraparound resources, smoking cessation counseling, uh, nutrition counseling. If I can have access to those type of programs, which by and large, we have to acknowledge, right? A lot of those programs have been wrapped into healthcare as, as practices have been acquired, as hospital systems have spawned and as health plans have taken over this wellness perspective. You said that 100% of the docs agreed. We've never had 100% consensus on anything else ever <laughs> and likely won't. Uh, but I think it's quite powerful that it was in the realm of optimizing their patients for great outcomes. Well, talk to us a little bit about risk adjustment. These, uh, these payment models, one of the criticisms <laughs> of them uh, in the past has been that they lack risk adjustment. And so mm -hmm. they disadvantage uh, people with multiple medical mm -hmm. problems, multiple comorbidities. Uh, how have you dealt with that at UPMC? So our approach is, one, you have to acknowledge that it exists. I mean, and, and that's a big market debate. Uh, they definitely exist. There, there are different perspectives, and even some that I'm sure I'm not aware of, on how you address it. There are some who say, you know what, there's just a natural rate of attrition of comorbidities. And if we're going into a capitated model, you should feel okay with no risk adjustment because it's naturally in, in, in your population, right? And, and that one doesn't really make you feel, at least me as a surgeon, warm and fuzzy at night. I say, you know, okay, uh, see, you know, a lot of hocus pocus. <laughs> but essentially what we try to say is, okay, we have uh, comorbidities, we need to do risk adjustment. Do we really wanna focus in on a procedure? So in our case, we took just, uh, you know, clean joints, for example, you know, no joints with high complication rates, no 469 joints. As the coding has changed, you say, okay, where is our risk adjustment opportunity? Are there certain uh, comorbidities that are higher risk than others? And so one approach we've taken is we have a quote unquote, a bundle busting uh, criteria where we really talk about, okay, you know what? We want to present a program of quality and optimized uh, orthopedic care for elective procedures. And we want to contract this with companies and give them to patients and offer them. But we tell, we want to educate and say, you know what? If you actually have uncontrolled comorbidities in this realm, we will work to optimize you for this. But you may not be eligible initially for surgery, and, and more importantly, you're not going to be. You may not be eligible for a uh, fixed price bundled program, or you may have a different tiered price. Uh, or more importantly, uh, the way you get around some of that, though, so people are not shut out from care, in my opinion is, you sh those individuals should be rewarded for engaging with that environment. Because if you actually shove people away or you say, you know what, no, you know, no go here, they're going to go find someone somewhere if they need help. They're going to seek it out in as many places as possible. And unfortunately, there's not always a lending hand of positivity and great outcome around every corner. And so our goal is how can we build something where we're partners uh, in improving their health and getting them access to care. But you have to talk about it. Um, you know, if you're unwilling to talk about it or assume that it's just going to, you know, flow with the ocean wave, uh, you're fooling yourself. And, and I've had that complex conversation with not just surgeons, but particularly healthcare administrators. And, and I, I'm willing to learn, uh, but we have to acknowledge that this is real. Um, and, and to not acknowledge it, we're not doing the best for society. 
Well, you had mentioned uh, patient experience scores, and uh, I'm particularly interested in that part of it because of my background in uh, uh, trying to train surgeons how to communicate effectively <laughs> with their patients. Um, I was very interested by the University of Utah Value Project and their definition mm -hmm. of value. Mm -hmm. As you know, Movement is Life has sponsored community programs in different locations. And as part of those community uh, programs, uh, they have also done focus groups with uh, the patients in those programs and also with some of the healthcare navigators or community health workers. And so uh, one of the things that come out of that is that uh, patients may have a very different opinion of what mm -hmm. constitutes value as opposed to uh, what uh, providers or payers might have. The Utah Value Project had made a very simple equation. It was quality plus service divided by cost equals value. The project chains groups the, that Movement is Life sponsored identified good communication and respectful, unbiased care as the things that they valued the most. My question for you is, uh, in your opinion, where does the clinician-patient communication and respect figure into the value equation? Is it part of quality or is it part of service? So I, I think they go hand in hand. And, I, and the reason I, I feel this way is, let's say you have a, a star rating system. You've never actually seen someone receive a five star on how good their food tastes and actually get a one star for their bathrooms being clean, dirty, or no one speaking to them. It just doesn't happen. I mean, the, the, you, when you really look at things, there's always an average. So if you want to be great on all spectrums, often you have to have to be great uh, across all those different realms, right? So, I, so with that, you know, the quality piece, what is the quality of your experience? And that starts with how you're engaging with people yeah. in the office. If we're truly just in this robotic realm, th then this would be a non-discussion, a non-starter. So I do believe it sits in quality. And then from there, what is this, to what degree uh, are you really serving the patient and vice versa? So I think they actually do go hand in hand. Um, and so it doesn't answer your question perfectly in, in regards to where do they sit. Uh, here's my position, that there should actually be no table of discussion without both of them on it is, is how I approach it. And okay. uh, and often you'll have the scenario where uh, dog and pony, some places will have a Taj Mahal for presentation um, and and uh, they can fool some people. <laughs> and patients are usually like, I thought it was gonna be great because it looks so wonderful. Uh, but uh, and when it came down to actually the communication of the, of the doctors, as you mentioned, and the staff, mm -hmm. uh, it was not great. And so I think they, they both have to be at the table of equal weight. Well, that certainly uh, matches with my bias because I think it is both a uh, component of quality as well as a component of service. Mm -hmm. And quality from the point of view of uh, accurate diagnosis and being mm -hmm. able to uh, more readily understand the patient's context and uh, the, the barriers they may be dealing with. I have just a couple more questions for you. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you have a very unique perspective because you work with payers, you are an individual provider, and you also work in a provider system. Uh, and I assume, like me, that you must be a patient from time to time. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. how do you personally define value in healthcare? What does that mean to you? Uh, so, so for me, is it something that actually made me better than how I was when I, when I ended it? You know, did I come out on the other end um, in a better position? And some people say, oh, what does better mean? You know what? My, some of that is my perspective. I think there. I think it's a joint perspective of the surgeon or whatever healthcare provider you may be seeing, whether it be a surgeon or your primary care physician. Uh, but uh, am I better off 
when I come out of the vortex of that care experience than I was when I went in. And sometimes better off is simply peace of mind. It didn't mean something had to be done to me. <laughs> right. It's like right. when you go to your primary care physician, what do they really do to you other than hopefully reassure you that, you know what, everything checks out good today. Right. <laughs> and you say, you know what, um, you know, and I think that's important in my mind, um, make it better than how you found it. And sometimes, even if that just includes, you know what, again, how I started, sometimes you just need someone to say hello, right? The experience changes. And so I think that's important and we have to recognize that. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. What can individual orthopedic surgeons do to mitigate the unintended consequences of alternative payment Mm -hmm. uh, models or just uh, the barriers that they uh, encounter in seeking care? This is a question I receive often. I think a number of orthopedic surgeons do who are very active in this space. And um, I'm a strong advocate that we have to be willing to take the time to advocate uh, for our patients uh, at the same uh, with the same vigor that we advocate for our practices, for our well-being, uh, for our ability to practice what we you know what we're passionate about. And so we have to be willing to be at the table and taking the time to help drive those discussions. Uh, be also being a co-pilot in that, those discussions as well. Um, if we have to really take the appropriate steps to listen to understand what is taking place in healthcare versus uh, just listening to respond to what's happening in healthcare. Um, uh, because I think if we take a little time to understand what's going on, uh, the responses that we're able to give will actually help steer us to a better place uh, because we understand our craft, quite frankly, better than anyone should. Uh, and, and often as our patient relationships and communication builds, we understand our patients and our patients' needs uh, better than anyone else can as well. And so um, I, I think that's critically important. So we have to be willing to be at the table and we have to be willing to have difficult discussions uh, uh, even those that we do not always know the answers to. Uh, and I think that's critically important. I really do appreciate your assessment and sharing your knowledge and your expertise with us regarding uh, the current situation. Mm-hmm. We've discussed the value equation of the social determinants of health and how remedies such as risk adjustment can give us a more patient-centric approach and help to narrow healthcare disparities in vulnerable populations. Thank you, Dr. Hogan. Appreciate it very much. No, absolutely. This was fun. (laughs) We'll be returning to the subject frequently, so please check back and visit our website, movementislifecaucus.com, for transcripts and other resources. You'll also be able to sign up for the email list to receive alerts and updates. Thanks for listening. Be safe and be well.